0: It's fall, and things feel almost normal here again. The buffets have reopened, festivals are selling out, and the traffic is back on Las Vegas Boulevard. The Strip is once again filled with party buses, stretch limos, and family sedans with license plates from Nebraska, Colorado, and Utah. But on September 24th, police closed off a portion of the Strip as hundreds of Culinary Workers Union members marched up the boulevard Waving signs and chanting because things aren't back to normal for everyone yet.
1: Daily room cleaning!
2: Daily room cleaning! Alright, alright, listen, We're very really happy to be here on the beautiful Las Vegas Strip. This is where we live. This is where we work. We want full service. What do we want? 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 What want? What do we want? What do
0: we want? You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio about Asian American and Pacific Islander issues in Southern Nevada. This episode is the first in a three part series about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Southern Nevada's AAPI communities. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco-Moss. And today, we're taking a look at the lingering effects of pandemic unemployment. How have AAPI community members struggled alongside workers of all races? Why do Asian American women have the highest rates of long-term unemployment? How has the pandemic impacted Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans differently? And how are boxes of cabbage, soy sauce, and rice helping workers get through the lean months and overcome the shame of accepting help?
3: Las Vegas casinos were ordered to close in mid-March.
0: Governor Steve Boxing Sisolak addressing back. MGM Infusion Resorts announcing hotel operations will stop. The COVID
3: economic days. shutdown hit Las Vegas harder than any and other And with the city closed city. for over a month now, nearly 350,000 residents have filed for unemployment. Las Vegas was hit hard by the pandemic lockdowns. Nevada was hardest hit during the pandemic because our number one industry is travel and tourism and hospitality. And when the pandemic hit, we knew that we needed to put lives and our safety over profits and over money. And we knew that shutting down was the
0: right thing to do. That's Bethany Kahn, spokeswoman for the Culinary Union, the largest
3: union in Nevada. They're also the
0: largest organization of AAPI workers in the state.
3: During the shutdown, 99 percent of the 60,000 members we represent were furloughed. Now, uh, over 19 months into this pandemic, we still have about 35 percent of the 60,000 members we represent who are not yet back to work. The numbers bear this out.
0: As of this fall, Nevada has the highest unemployment rate in the country.
3: A lot of our fem- um, fellow co-workers didn't come back. And then the hotel's busy and, you know, we uh, short our staff. So we need uh, people to come back and, uh, it, to clean rooms, right? Stella Caloran has worked as a housekeeper at a Popular
0: Strip hotel for 11 years. And she's a member of the culinary union.
3: So now because of COVID, we have to extra sanitize. So a lot of more precaution that needs to be taken. So that of slow us down. In
0: June, Governor Steve Sisolak signed SB 386 into law, a hotly contested piece of legislation known as the Right to Return Act.
3: The new Nevada law mandates that employers must recall workers when the business reopens or the casino reopens or if the restaurant resumes operations. And so... Some workers are going back to work already because of that, and some are still waiting.
0: Opponents say the law's many stipulations are too burdensome and discourage employers from rehiring at all. But those in favor argue workers who've been loyal to the company deserve first dibs when their former jobs reopen. Part of the problem is that service workers are often seen as interchangeable or replaceable because there's an assumption that they're unskilled.
3: And I think Dr. King said that all work has dignity, right? And if you talk to the average guest room attendant who cleans maybe 15 rooms in a day or a bartender or cocktail server who serves thousands of drinks or prepares thousands of drinks in a year, there is no way that you could say that these jobs are that. Like people think that, well, it's easy, just, you know, wipe it down and all that. But no, it's presentation also. So when the guests check in, It's also, you know, when you go into the room, you have to to look at the bed and that wow, you know, the first impression we see is the bed. So try telling somebody who don't know housekeeping to go, you know, make the bed. They (laughs) can't. I heard similar assumptions when I started working in professional kitchens.
0: My first job cooking in a restaurant almost broke me. At times, I prepped and chopped and cooked for 16 hours straight with no lunch break. One night, I cut my finger pretty deep. I crazy glued it shut, as many cooks do, put on three pairs of rubber gloves, and went back to the line to work. I basted beef cheeks and herbs and butter with nine good fingers. I flipped frisbee-sized hash browns with my weaker hand. As a team, from servers to dishwashers to cooks, we killed it that night. We served perfectly plated food for 500 people. This is not a unique story. It's the kind of dedication
4: that so-called unskilled workers demonstrate daily. And in our our current moment, I would argue that it's become a stigmatized term, something that we've sort of socially devalued whole fields of work with the assumption that there's something flawed with the worker, right? There's something flawed with someone who's not in a quote-unquote skilled job.
0: Preeti Sharma is a professor at Cal State Long Beach where she studies gender, immigration, and labor. Recently, she's written about service work by Asian American women.
4: Service work is work that's highly and historically feminized, right, or associated with women's work. So it's kind of the cooking, cleaning, caring, health provision, or even nurturing type work. So you have a large proportion of people of color and women of color that are in, in these positions.
0: Asian immigrant women, in particular, are often associated with service work. You know the stereotype of the quiet, docile Asian woman handing you a cup of tea, her head bowed.
4: I'm thinking so much about the times that, for example, I go into the South Asian grocery store only to be greeted by, like, a frowning auntie who just is so tired and doesn't want to serve me, right? And so this idea that Asian immigrant women are servile or, you know, meticulous and good at painting nails, for example, because they're Asian is just so funny (laughs) to me.
0: Preeti says there are historical reasons why Asian immigrant women go into service work.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Asian immigrant women are in service jobs for a whole multitude of reasons.
0: Some of those reasons, Preeti says have to do with the history of U.S. political and military involvement in Asia.
4: So what that means is when Asian immigrant women are pushed out and come to the U.S. as either immigrants or refugees, they're also often shut out of other forms of work because of these sort of expectations that we're talking about earlier, whether that's of degree or of education or of language. And I think that becomes kind of a key factor as to why Asian immigrant women are sort of conscripted into service work.
0: So during the pandemic, Preeti says service workers were really vulnerable because they were vulnerable
4: before the pandemic. This pandemic, which is certainly ongoing, by the way, has been so, so tough in terms of work and the service economy and has really laid bare the problems of work, especially in terms of race and gender in this country. So, you know, one of the most profound statistics that I have seen circulating in the pandemic about Asian women is that a striking 44% of Asian women over the age of 16 who lost their jobs during the pandemic were out of work for at least six months, and this was as of December 2020. And this is actually the highest rate among women of any racial group. Why? Why is it that Asian
0: women have the highest rates of long-term pandemic unemployment?
4: This, I think, kind of goes back to our conversations around service work and racialized and gendered service work and who is in service work positions. And I think we can say that you know, Asian immigrant women make up a large part of the workforce in restaurants, in salons and spas, and in a lot of these Places that, frankly, closed down in the pandemic, and depending on what state you were in, had to stay closed down for quite some time until COVID numbers reached a certain point. Coming up, how the
0: pandemic affected Pacific Islanders. You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio, about AAPI issues in Southern Nevada. This episode is the first in a three-part series about how COVID-19 affected our communities. Earlier in the episode, we talked about why Asian American women had the highest rates of long-term pandemic unemployment. The same report explains that grouped together, Asian American and Pacific Islander women Make 85 cents on the dollar compared with white non Hispanic men. When you break down that data further, Samoan and Tongan women earn 60 cents, Nepalese women earn 54 cents, and Burmese women earn 52 cents on the dollar compared with white men. Pandemic job precarity meant that on top of having low wage work, AAPI woman had a harder time getting back into the workforce.
5: I was so devastated that I just wanted to go back home. Like, I cried for days because I was just like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We were in the midst of, like, I was worried because I didn't want to be homeless.
0: Kanoi Kalua moved to Las Vegas with her family just three weeks before the pandemic started. In Hawaii, she was a sales manager and her husband was an executive chef the hospitality jobs here looked appealing.
5: So I couldn't find a job. He got laid off and we were just kind of like, what are we going to do? It, that was a hard part because he caught the COVID and I would never think that that something would happen. So he ended up in the hospital for a week. Me and my kids all caught it.
0: Kanoi's story points to another startling fact. In most of the states that actually separate Asians and Pacific Islanders in the data, Pacific Islanders have the highest rates of COVID death and hospitalization.
5: But just in the midst of that, like before all of that happened when my husband ended up in the hospital, he got laid off. So I couldn't get a job. I worked for Amazon about two months and then it was just kind of job jumping because Mm -hmm. I couldn't get a job. I came from being a sales manager to coming here and I couldn't even get in a hotel because everything shut down.
0: Kanoi and her family are doing better now thanks to her Hawaiian community. One of the organizations that helped her is a group called the Ninth Island Aunties, started by Kathy Manami.
5: All these people just got together in their community, and you know, like the the Hawaiian community, they got together, all the aunties, and they just was like, I mean, I didn't even know who they were, but they're like, yeah, we're bringing food, don't worry, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you guys need anything?
0: The aunties assisted Kanoi's family with school supplies. They helped her navigate complicated forms to apply for assistance. And today, Kanoi is finishing a degree program and already working as a regional operations manager for a medical center.
5: We really felt like we are at home. It was just like, you know, just the love, the aloha that we had. Back at home, that's just how we are.
0: You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast about Asian-American and Pacific Islander issues in Southern Nevada. When AAPI workers lost their jobs, unions and community groups stepped in to help. But what can we learn from businesses who are taking it on themselves to take care of their employees? First, how is business and life? I'm so excited you're (laughs) expecting again. It feels like every time we talk.
2: (laughs) Um, It's been pretty good. uh, Challenging a bit, but, you know, it's... Comes with a game. Yeah. I sat down with Let's Penny
0: Chua, like co owner of the world famous Thai restaurant uh, Lotus of Siam. Her <laughs> really family, including her mother, Chef Saipan Chutama, brought Lotus to Las Vegas in nineteen ninety nine. She's you been know, instrumental getting, in helping turn it into one of the best Thai, thai restaurants in the country. With how long you've been successful at <clears throat> Lotus, I imagine a lot of your staff is like family to you. Did you feel like that pushed you even harder to protect that family? during this time?
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I was probably one of the other restaurants that paid my staff throughout COVID when we weren't even working. So it was like they got their full check. Nothing was changed. How did you do that? Did you just take it out of your profits, I'm guessing? So in the beginning, we did. And then after that, we got the PPP, used up all the PPP for our staff, which, thank God, got forgiven. And... I had to increase my prices because if I don't, I'm going to die. My staff's not going to get paid. And so seeing all this, when you increase the price at, at any other restaurant that's non-Asian, I feel, when the price increases, they're like, oh, it's fine. You know, French kitchen or Italian food. It's, it makes sense. But Thai food? Thai food's supposed to be cheap,
0: do you think uh, all restaurants should be able to take the same measures you've
2: taken? To be honest, my playbook is very different. It, I, I don't want to tell people like I'm kind of a gambler, but I am. <laughs> so I, I gambled those choices. I don't think a lot of people have that option to do. Penny explained that it took a lot of puzzling over the numbers,
0: figuring out how to save where in order to pay her staff. With the cost of ingredients fluctuating so much during the pandemic, those numbers kept changing. She was doing a lot of math.
2: But I feel like if somebody was to actually copy my playbook for this, I don't think it would work out. (laughs) It it takes a lot of not just brain power, but you really have to know your stuff in order to do this. At this point in time, are you pretty resolute then to try your
0: best to keep your family, your mother's business, running and still as successful as possible?
2: 100%. I mean, like I said, I watched her grow this brand and I don't want it to end just with her. I want her, everything that she started, to keep going on. Like, you know, it makes me proud because it's like, hey, you know, that's my mom. When a small
0: business goes under, it's not just a loss of income for the workers and the family who runs it. There's a real pain and shame wrapped up in the failure of a business or the loss of a job. One nonprofit here in Las Vegas is helping workers fill their pantries and overcome that shame.
1: So what you're seeing right now are um, sacks of rice. Um, so. Each family will get about 25 pounds rice. We have tofu, we have tilapia, we have radish, we have ginger, we have napa cabbage, even potatoes and carrots. Hello, I'm Edelweiss Solano, Director of Family Services at the Asian Community Development Council. Edelweiss
0: helps run the ACDC's Asian Food Pantry for anyone struggling to feed their family. They started it in October 2020 with funding from the CARES Act. Inside a breezy open warehouse, volunteers open plastic-wrapped pallets of rice, noodles, and produce. They pack bottles of soy sauce, vinegar, and oyster sauce into plastic shopping bags.
1: So what makes our food pantry different is that we it is culturally tailored to our community. For example, a Vietnamese family will be receiving a rice noodle, a fish sauce, which you typically see in a an Asian household. Like for a Filipino, you would find shrimp paste, or even um, you know a ginger eggplant or napa cabbage. So just to name a few.
6: In particular, it is a culturally sensitive diet that our community members have. So we, a lot of Asian people are lactose intolerant and we don't normally eat cheese. Like We don't have that much intake for milk products. So a lot of the dairy is, is not accessible for us.
0: That's Chloe Shaw, Senior Civic Engagement Manager for the ACDC.
6: So the clients that we work with are, come from all different walks of life. They are people who lost their jobs from the hotel industry during the pandemic, but there are also people who work at the grocery stores, the nail salons, really just from any walk of life here in, in the Las Vegas area.
0: One woman picking up a box of food pulled up in an Uber. She had to leave her job as a cook when her husband, who also worked in hospitality, had a stroke.
1: Yeah, I have to, yeah. I have to take care of him. Yeah, nobody caregiver. So my husband got stroke and he's still paralyzed right now. Then I use the food for everyday use until uh, we're waiting for the social security kick in. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. But accepting
6: help isn't always easy. So API members sometimes struggle asking for help because it is a difficult thing to acknowledge and to recognize and to voice that you actually need assistance, especially in the Chinese community. I can speak from my own personal, personal background and personal story. The Chinese community has a term that refers to losing face when you're asking for help. The phrase is diolian, which is to lose face. If you're using that term, you're you're essentially kind of an embarrassment to your community, to your family.
0: Both Chloe and Edelweiss say that admitting you need help is a taboo subject in many AAPI communities.
1: Yes, we have that clients who verbally said that that. They even apologize for asking for help. But Of course, we would encourage and comfort them that it's okay. It's okay that you know, everybody is having um, a difficult time and it's okay to ask for help. I think it's just
6: normalizing conversation, really. We re- recently had an episode about mental health in our communities. And I think it was just the first step that you take. It's kind of being able to say, hey, it's okay to not be okay. Another stereotype
0: that can obscure the needs of Asian-Americans who are struggling is the model minority myth. Preeti Sharma, who we spoke with earlier, says that this myth of universal Asian-American success is used as a racial wedge to pit communities of color against each other.
4: And the assumption is that Asian-Americans are highly and wholly successful and that, you know, why can't other racial groups be like Asian Americans and their sort of success and achievement. I can see how that plays out in the pandemic in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of shame and guilt operating in not doing well and not wanting to sort of ask for support. But I would also sort of challenge that just a little bit in the sense that Asian American communities are also a part of a long tradition of giving and mutuality, where there can also be really informal systems of support that form the very networks that allow, for example, these niche economies and services to sort of form and thrive.
0: Back at the food pantry, an elderly Chinese man drove up, holding a packet of dried seaweed. It was a thank you gift, he said for the volunteers who'd given him a box of food last month. I'm
1: from uh, Be- uh, Beijing. Uh, and the gourmet, uh, oh, this is uh, the gourmet seafood from Ranch 99. A hundred pounds a month. It lasts me two months of great Chinese gourmet food. I eat all that. I love. Especially sung, and pork sung, and, and the fish and, and the beef and and, and, and uh, me, uh, really, really, it. it, it touch my uh, my root, my Asian root.
4: There's just this huge impetus to come together and offer mutual aid at the real recognition that hey everything shut down and it's not it's not your fault. You've been
0: listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio. We record this show on the lands of the Southern Paiute people. Thank you to our guests this episode, Bethany Kahn, Stella Kalaram, Preeti Sharma, Kanoi Kaluwa, Penny Chua, Edelweiss Solano, and Chloe Shaw. Special thanks to Jean Munson, Kristen Kidman, and Zachary Green. This podcast was made possible with support from Arcata Associates. Music in this episode is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes executive producer Sonia Cho-Swanson, academic research consultant Mark Badungpat, and research assistant Nessa Concepcion. Joe Shaneman oversees podcasts as news director at Nevada Public Radio. And our sound editing, mixing, and mastering is by Regina Ravazova of Open Conversation. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco-Moss. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate you.